This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. There's this famous photo from 1972 taken during the Vietnam War. The photographer was a journalist named Nick Utt. And while the photo is officially called the terror of war, people often refer to it as Napalm Girl. You've probably seen it. It was taken moments after a U.S. commander ordered South Vietnamese planes to drop napalm near a village just north of Saigon. In the photo, children are seen running away from that village. And in the center is a nine-year-old girl, Kim Phuc, naked, crying, and running toward the camera. The image is unforgettable. In the U.S., newspaper editors made exceptions to their policies banning frontal nudity and published the photo widely. It became one of the most indelible war photos ever taken, and it won the Pulitzer Prize. Four years ago, a Norwegian writer named Tom Eglund posted that same photo to Facebook. It is a photo of a a nine-year-old girl running naked through the streets, and it was removed under the child exploitive imagery rule. That's Kate Klonick, a lawyer and writer whose research is focused on Facebook. And it happened to have been posted by a very famous Norwegian author who got very upset and threw a fit on Facebook after it was removed. And the Norwegian prime minister then posted it and it was removed. And then there was a a letter to Mark Zuckerberg that was published on the front page of a Norwegian newspaper said, Dear Mark Zuckerberg, And it was a whole lecture about censorship. First, you make rules that don't distinguish between child pornography and important war documentary photos. Then you practice these rules without sound judgment. Facebook eventually allowed the photo to go back up. But the whole controversy, Kate says, was a turning point. I think that they had failed up until that point to recognize how much these content moderation decisions could not be solved just by taking things down. And it was just as important to make people feel like they were heard and that they had voice as it was to remove content that they didn't want to see. In the years after the controversy over the Napalm Girl image, Facebook has continued to struggle with these decisions. They've created a huge content moderation operation and endured scandals over doctored videos and deplatforming. Facebook simply couldn't settle on a clear system that determined what stays up and what comes down. So right now, the company is trying something new, creating an independent oversight board, separate from the company, that will decide what content stays and what goes, a group users can appeal to, and one that will try to police what 2 billion people put online. Think of it as a Supreme Court for Facebook. You're a lawyer. You've written and thought a lot about this. What was your first thought when you heard that they were doing this? I mean, I follow these breakouts more than probably anyone. And even I was kind of like, well, I'll believe it when I see it. So Kate asked to watch and Facebook said yes. For most of the past year, she's been an independent observer embedded inside the company 
as it wrestles with what its Supreme Court can and should be. And there have been moments where I've been very skeptical that it's all going to come together and survive. And then there have been moments of kind of grandiosity in which I'm just kind of like, wow, this is maybe going to change the world forever. Today on the show, building Facebook's Supreme Court. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Over the last year, Kate Klonick spent hundreds of hours inside Facebook as the structure of this Supreme Court for content moderation, called the Oversight Board, was taking shape. Well, you've been embedded within Facebook. How did that happen? Yeah, it happened because I think I'm the only one who's dorky enough to ask. Um, And I mean that sincerely. I mean, I think that even people who covered tech kind of saw the oversight board and the announcement as kind of like, okay, like this is just a PR stunt. But this particular project is about building transparency and accountability. And so I think that there was a different, slightly different set of rules um, around this than maybe there would be for other parts of Facebook or following around other parts of Facebook. So when I kind of pitched this idea of like, I'd like to embed, I don't want an NDA and I want to tape everything because if, if this goes belly up and I have to write about it, I don't want you coming back at me and saying that this didn't happen. Do you remember your first day there? Oh, God, yes. Yes. What's it like? <laughs> um, I mean, I happened to be there the first week that all of the interns had started. And so there's something like 8,000 interns. And so the place was just a zoo and it was just completely packed. And I started having meetings and going into meetings with the governance team that was building this out. And it was very much like, I don't know, a little bit like what Jane Goodall must have felt like when she wandered into the jungle for the first time. I didn't speak the language. I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't know which questions to ask. The whole thing was like, I would say the first couple of days was about learning the language of Facebook and learning how to talk to them in constructive ways. I do think that the language of technology can be confusing and intimidating. What did the people you met with say that they were trying to do, you know, in English? You know, a lot of them were lawyers. So that was actually kind of weirdly this common language that we could speak in while I was learning all the acronyms. And I basically likened a lot of this to a court system. And I likened a lot of this to kind of constitution building or institution building. And that was everyone was seeing it the same way. You've used the example of Facebook as a nation state. Mark Zuckerberg has described social media as a fifth estate. And I I wonder if you agree with that in principle going forward and if it scares you at all. Oh, I don't think of Facebook as a nation state. I think of it as 
something else. I see it as like sitting on top of nation states. Hmm. I would say that for years, for millennia, the trade-off was between nation states and citizens. And the story of speech was one of censorship by nation states and trying to curb that and by pushing back with democracy. And what platforms did and what the internet did was it allowed citizens to not worry about that anymore and to route around the problem of state censorship. Of course, now we know that like states are also co-opting platforms to route around the problem of democracy. <laughs> In all of this, I'm not pro-platform. I'm not anti-platform. I'm If there is anything that I am, I kind of think that I'm just pro-user citizen, which I think is the one stakeholder here that is not centralized enough to be able to kind of represent um, and understand this kind of brave new world of everything that's happening. I guess that makes me wonder about sort of the meta questions of who should be in charge of policing all of these things. And, and if we as users are going to be comfortable with an independent board or, or if some people are going to say, yeah, that, that doesn't work for me. Like I want the government involved here. Yeah, but the question then is what government, which True. government? People always are kind of like, why can't the government just do that? And I'm always just like, which, which government? <laughs> like, like this is this is this is like literally like it's, this is operating within every single nation, state, and government pretty much besides China. So like, which government? To what ends? Like specifically in the United States, you're hamstrung by the First Amendment, for better or for worse, of them trying to come in and say what Facebook can or cannot put on their platforms. And I'm not saying that that's not the answer for certain types of problems. I just don't think that the comfortable heuristic of, you know, we'll pass a law against it or whatever works in this scenario. Um, it requires something greater. In November 2018, Mark Zuckerberg began the process of making this idea of an oversight board into a reality. In a series of blog posts, the company announced that it would hold workshops around the world to hear what people wanted in the board. They went to Singapore, Delhi, Nairobi, Berlin, New York, Mexico City to work out exactly how to design a Supreme Court for content. There were six months of consultancy and a global consultancy period where they went all over the world and asked experts and stakeholders and held workshops and consulted with over 2,500 people to figure out what people thought the board should look like. Kate was there for some of those sessions. At the end, Facebook wrote a report summing up what people said they wanted and how little agreement there actually was. You wrote that in the end, the consensus reflected in their report is pretty much exactly what you'd expect from an attempt to find global common ground, which is to say not much at all. What do you do with that when you've got all these different people from all over the world and yet you've got to make one thing from all of their responses? Yeah. I mean, if you read the report from that global consultancy, it's literally like we heard one set of people cared really about this and another set of people cared about the exact opposite. Freedom of expression means a lot in America and Europe and actually means a little bit less in the global south where they're mostly concerned with safety. And so trying to balance those with one set of rules is incredibly hard. And honestly, one of the things that we might eventually see come out of the oversight board is a formalization of the balkanization of the internet, which is oh. to say that there's just like that we're going to split it up into, into regions, that there's going to be different rule sets for different regions. In fact, I was in the room at one point when they were talking about having a board member from a local region on every panel 
when they heard cases. So like if you heard a case from Sri Lanka, you would have someone that was representative of Sri Lanka. But with the 40 person board, that quickly became impossible. And so everyone was kind of like, this just doesn't make sense. We're not going to do this. And that was in May. But by the end of June, one of the biggest things that had surfaced in the workshops and all of the things was that people wanted a local member on the panel. And so it was like they were like, "Okay, well, we'll just have to make it happen. You mentioned speech being a challenge. Are there other areas that came up consistently as part of the process that were thorny? The decision of how to select board members is really, really hard. So what Facebook basically kind of came up with was they would pick the first three or four co-chairs and those three or four co-chairs would then work with Facebook to select the initial cadre of board members until they got to maybe 15 or 20. Once they get to 15 or 20, the board will be announced, which is expected in late March or early April. And going forward from that, they'll have a hiring committee and they'll choose their members themselves entirely by themselves. But there's a question of taint, right? Of like how, whether that taints the entire process and means that it's not actually independent and whether, you know, there has been, there's all types of other structural and financial um, independence built in for the board members. But For me, this was a big one. And I think for a lot of the people in the workshops that I was in and the global consultancy period, that one of the things that was brought up over and over again was like, how are you going to do this without the hand of Facebook always having been in this process? In January, Facebook made its first attempt to answer that question in detail. It released a set of bylaws covering everything from the makeup of the board to the individual appeals process for content. So how's it going to work? Let's say that I post something, it gets taken down for whatever reason. Then what happens? So what will happen is, let's say you post a picture of your cat and someone flags it for violence against animals and gets taken down incorrectly. You appeal that once to Facebook through their internal mechanisms, and then you'd appeal it again. If you get to that level, you will get a code and you will take that code and you will copy and paste it and you will go to a website that is not Facebook and you will copy and paste that code in to generate your file and to give permission for Facebook to allow your private information to be reviewed by an outside body. And then it goes before a case selection committee, which functions a little bit like writ in the Supreme Court, um, which is kind of they decide whether or not your case is worth reviewing. If your case is selected, it's brought before a five-person panel of oversight board members, and they then write a decision explaining why they gave their answer and saying whether they would take it down or keep it up. If a decision around a particular piece of content might be representative of a larger issue, then that small five-person panel can flag it with the larger 40-person board. If they've made a policy decision or a policy recommendation, that Facebook has to reply to that policy decision and say why it is that they are implementing that policy decision or why they're not. And that is also a public statement. Then all of those decisions are put into a database that is searchable on the website and we'll be able to kind of have a common law type uh, database that allows us to see similar facts or similar rulings. And all of this is supposed to happen within 90 days of making that initial complaint? Yes, exactly, which is insane. Um, (laughs) It's insane. It's insane for like, well, 
it's insane for two reasons. One is the idea that you can do all of that within 90 days. And then the other part of it is that both seems very slow and very fast. It feels very fast to give that amount of due process to someone. I mean, court cases languish for years, right? But at the same time, it seems really slow because there is in the life of the internet within 18 hours, things might no longer be relevant. From the user perspective, it's really supposed to be about signaling erroneous decisions or decisions that people want change on Facebook's policy about to an outside board when time is not really of the essence. I listened to you detail all these steps and they're frankly sort of dizzying in their complexity. Tell me about it. <laughs> um. Boy, it seems like a lot for an individual user. It is a lot for an individual user. But I think that we're kind of at this point where these transnational private companies that have got privately governed our public rights of speech, I think it's maybe time. It's These issues have certainly are not new. They've been happening for the last 20 years. And so I think that people have become so much more literate in such a short amount of time. And I think that this is just the tip of the iceberg of that kind of civics and cultural literacy around this issue. This appeals process Kate is describing, it only applies to content that has already been removed from the platform. So if you're a user and you want to see something come down, the oversight board can't help. It is narrow, though, because this is just about content that gets taken down. It's not about whether my neighbor is posting vaccine misinformation that I would like to see taken down. Yeah. And so at the beginning, it's only going to be about removal. And so if you think about this, actually, from a privacy perspective, this makes a lot of sense. Let's say that you flag a piece of content that your neighbor posts, right? And Facebook says, no, we're keeping it up. And you want to appeal that decision. For you to appeal that decision, given the process that I just gave you, you would be sending someone else's data off of Facebook and into the outside world. From a privacy perspective, you just can't. That's very difficult to do. When I think about how the typical person uses Facebook, do you think this is going to change their experience all that much? I don't think that most people will appeal this type of content, but I think it might be part of a broader industry change that ends up happening. I see this kind of going one of three ways. On one hand, it might end up being that this just stays at Facebook. The other way that you could think about it is that other websites, Twitter, Google, whatever, chip into the trust and then also want to use the oversight board and the people on the oversight board as their own adjudicators of their own types of content. And the third way I could see it going is that each of these platforms decides to create its own oversight board to review their own content based on their own rules and values. And in that case, what I see happening for users is markets of rules. You are very explicitly going to certain types of platforms to be able to say certain types of things with the understanding that you can say certain types of things on some platforms and not on others. Kate Klonick, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Kate Klonick is an assistant professor at St. John's University School of Law. She's also a fellow at the Information Society Project at Yale. All right, that's it for today. What Next TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks and hosted by me, Lizzie O'Leary. And it's part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. 
This year, Future Tense is collaborating with the Tech Law and Security Program at American University Washington College of Law on the Free Speech Project, an editorial and event series. The series will examine the ways technology is influencing how we think about speech. Okay, Mary will be back on Monday. Thanks for listening. Talk to you all next week. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.